Please be seated. So if we um, remember from a couple of weeks ago then, the Last Supper has taken place. Judas has gone to carry out his deed of betrayal. And Jesus goes with his followers to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that his death is now close at hand. In the course of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus has experienced many different human emotions. Now, more than ever before, he's going to wrestle through real fear and real terror, and through what is perhaps for many the greatest fear of all, the fear of death. This place to which they go then, this garden named after an olive press, that's what Gethsemane means, is located east of Jerusalem on or adjacent to the Mount of Olives and adjacent also to the Kidron Valley. And this valley, this area, has been a significant place in the history of God's people. In 1 Kings chapter 15, King Asa destroys idols there, restoring true worship of God. In 2 Kings, another queen, Athaliah, who promoted idolatry, led the people into false religion, meets her end there as true worship is again restored. Later, King Josiah, the boy king who brings revival, rediscovers the book of God's law, also destroys idols there. This place, this general area where Jesus makes what we might call his last stand then, is a place where truth and true worship have often been fought for and spiritual battles have been won. Here it is then that he will begin the final victory of his atonement, the achievement that all of these past shadows have pointed to, the victory over death, that enables us to worship and fellowship with him in the fullness of new life in spirit and in truth. In this garden, in the next few hours, much will be accomplished and many words of significance, both for good or ill, will also be spoken. And we're going to look at some of these sayings over the next few moments. And there's the garden. Perhaps the greatest contrast of this passage is that Jesus, strengthened by God, is able to go the distance and achieve what he needs to achieve, while his followers first drift off to sleep and then run for their lives. So what accounts for the difference? Yes, Jesus is God, but he's God-made man. The great mystery of who he is is that although he's divine and pure, he's also human. But in being human, he's taught his followers and through them us how to seek God. In his temptation... He refused to let the devil mess with his mind as he had done with Adam and Eve, but rebuked him with correct use of God's word. Jesus knew his scriptures. In John 4.32, he tells his followers that he has food to eat that they know not of, being in his Father's will. Mark 1.35 shows him after healing many people and casting out demons, going to a solitary place, praying. In Luke 5.16, it tells us again that as many press round him, he often withdraws and prays alone. His strength, then, is forged in his close relationship 
with his father. Here in Gethsemane, he fulfills by his obedience what was lost long ago in another garden, Eden, by human disobedience and mistrusting God. And it's his obedience and, it's going, and his communion with God that is going to sustain him now through everything that lies ahead. And this is what, for three years, he has tried to pass on to. Peter says these rash words that we'll consider firstly. Even if the others fall away, I never will. Have you ever tried to teach someone who's just not getting what you're trying to tell them? Anyone who's a teacher here? Or have you been the one who's been taught and who's not getting it? Maybe we've both all been both at different times. Jesus has been trying to teach eternal perspectives, eternal strength, watching and praying, seeing things through God's eyes, and it seems that all the disciples do is latch on to the wrong things and jockey for position. Jesus, Jesus, they've cried at different times. Which of us will be first in the kingdom of heaven? Can we sit on your right hand? No, he tells them, serve each other. Jesus, they cried on another occasion, can we call down fire and consume these heathens? No. You can't go to the cross, we need you here. Can't hang out with them, cause a scandal. And why are you wasting time on children who don't understand anything? You can't lay hands on kids who haven't had a hair wash in a month. He's tried to teach them to pray without ceasing, cast their cares on him, trust in his strength, fear God and not man, and yet, at this crucial moment, just as it really matters, they've not got it. They think all is lost, the mission's failed. The sense of purpose and eternal security, the sense of spiritual power that they've operated under, seems to have evaporated. Could you not wait with me one hour, he asked them. But they've gone to sleep. It's easy perhaps for us, isn't it, to read this and be impatient or judgmental. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know that Jesus Christ is risen. And we sit here tonight, hopefully, because he's touched each of our lives. But I'm going to put to you some questions that I think this passage might ask us to consider and invite you to think about them prayerfully for a moment. Firstly then, Jesus' friends let him down just when he needed them the most. Can we think for a second about times when we might have failed to be the comfort and strength that others have needed us to be? Jesus' friends boasted that none of them would fail him, yet all of them did. Is our strength in the end in our own limited abilities, or is it in our communion with God? Jesus warned all of them, especially Peter, that the failure, the stumble, would come. Can we heed warnings like this when they're given to us? Can we examine ourselves honestly and give our weaknesses to God? Jesus' friends often failed to see the truth that he must die and would rise from the dead. Will we 
take this great truth as our ultimate strength and comfort. In the end, the lesson is painfully learnt. The disciples will be transformed from people who are just fearful for their own security and status to fearless servants of God, full of the Holy Spirit and power. By the time he writes his epistles, Peter has learned to exhort his own disciples to be humble-minded, to not return evil for evil, but to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And perhaps ruefully from bitter experience, he's able to warn them not to be surprised by trial or testing. In chapter 2 of his first letter, he reminds us, reliving what is no doubt a painful memory of this night, of how Jesus patiently stood before his captors, bearing their slanders before going to the cross, while he, Peter, was of course at that point skulking fearfully in the background somewhere, bitterly eating his words of self-confidence. In the same epistle, he can say, again, no doubt, with rueful hindsight, that trials have proved the genuineness of faith that's richer than gold because he's learnt and been restored. Peter's failure on this night, in this garden and afterwards, have taught him to walk closely and daily with God. The commentator Leslie Montgomery describes his own coming to Christ as follows. I spent many years, he says, in therapy due to childhood abuse, self-inflicted abuse as an adolescent and a young adult. I've read many self-help books and attended seminars on how to, attend, how to attain healing, peace and joy. I even studied child psychology, he says, in an attempt to work myself out. In doing so, I eventually functioned in a somewhat healthy manner in a dysfunctional world. But I knew, he says, I needed something more. I just didn't know what. When I became a believer, construction began from within and continues today, transforming a garden overrun by weeds into a place where the Holy Spirit resides. Although the remodeling is by no means complete, the Spirit is the contractor who oversees every step of that process. This is the work of ongoing restoration that God does in all of those who come to him and when they need to come back to him. It was done in Peter and in all the disciples and if we're in Christ tonight, it's going on in us too. And if tonight you can't at this point in time call yourself a believer, please be assured that this promise is open to you too to know that God is real and true, that he loves you, that he's bought you with his blood and wants to dwell in you and with you by his spirit to make you who you were born to be. And for all of us who stand where Old Testament believers could only dream of standing, on the other side of this great passion drama, born again by the resurrection of a risen saviour, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, will this be our joy and our strength. Taking Jesus by contrast then, we've seen how a lot of his strength was in his devotional life. We can also perhaps say that Jesus never lost sight of the eternal purpose he was walking in, in a way that his followers had, in a way that we sometimes can, or 
is fulfillment of prophecy. At the beginning of our passage, we've seen him bravely quote Zechariah, telling his friends that they will fall away, even as they as a man deny that they will. But he knew them, just as he knows each of us. And although he sees our falls, he also sees our hopeful learning from it and our gaining in strength as a result. He knew that his friends would scatter and run, but he knew that that wouldn't be the end of their story. Just as by his grace, our failures are not the end of ours. No doubt he's thinking of other prophecies too. The 30 pieces of silver prophesied exactly in Zechariah. In Exodus, that's the redemption price for the death of a slave. Here it's the price for which the suffering servant has just been sold. Psalm 22, maybe, where David's trials foreshadow details of Jesus' death that's about to take place. The way that men would mock him and challenge him to save himself if he can. The casting lots for his garment. The exposure of his bones. But maybe he's drawing comfort too at this moment of utter darkness from other prophecies that foreshadow the great and glorious resolution of everything that's about to happen. Psalm 16, for instance, in which David takes comfort from the future resurrection of Christ. The fact, and this is a fact, that the Holy One will not see the corruption, will not stay in the grave, that Jesus will and has risen, that this moment in the garden is just an end that points to a new beginning. Just before the beginning of our passage, Psalm 30, which we heard the other week, told us that they sang a hymn as they left the place where they'd had the Last Supper to go to the garden. This would have been the Hallel, Passover Psalms, which sing of God's mercy, of the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, of rejoicing in the day that the Lord has made, of God's love lasting forever. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're going to be executed and ask yourself whether you'd be singing a victory song. Jesus could do this because he knew that he was fulfilling these words, that he was and is that cornerstone, that he was and is God's victory and love. Let's consider secondly then, take this cup away from me. Three times, Jesus asks for the cup to be taken away from him. He's already said that he's sorrowful. Some translations say sorrowful to the point of death. In this, as in all things, he identifies with us in all of our pain and all of our weakness. Luke tells us in in his account of this story that the sweat fell from him like great drops of blood. And some people think he actually did sweat blood, something that only happens under the most acute stress. I wonder, at this moment in the garden, what's frightening him most? Is it the physical pain to come? Scourging, crown of thorns, crucifixion? The emotional pain of abandonment? Or is it perhaps the knowledge that he is shortly going to bear all of our sins on himself. His purity 
dirtied and marred, not by any sin or wrongdoing of his own, but by mine and yours. He's going to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why? Because God the Father has turned away from the sight of our sins resting on him. In the end, I guess that Jesus knows, even as he asks for the cup to pass, that in the end, it's a rhetorical question. Physically, yes, he could walk away, but on a deeper level, there's just too much at stake. But this cup of suffering will become a cup of victory and triumph. And it's surely with this in mind that as his captors approach, he's able to ask them, even with a touch of humorous irony, why they've come out in such force to arrest one man, tell them that they're able to apprehend and lay hands on them in this hour, only because it's an appointed time, that they, like he, are merely fulfilling prophecy. And that if he willed it, he could summon legions of angels to defend himself. The cup of suffering cannot be taken from him, but God helps it to become a cup of victory and achievement. Eden was a garden long ago where man lost everything by mistrust of God, by disobedience, and so through that all people are born into sin. In Gethsemane, Jesus restores what is lost by submission, obedience, trusting God, and so through this we're born again. Which garden tonight are you planted in? Let's consider thirdly and finally then those who live by the sword die by it. Even as his own death stares him in the face, Jesus is still able to minister to others, to reach out and heal somebody who's come to help take him to his death. I wonder what Malchus made of the strange events of this night. The servants of the high priest, not named by Matthew, but named later by John, perhaps, as we heard a few weeks ago, because John was writing at a later time, when identifying this man could no longer do him any harm. What was Malchus thinking as he went forth on this night mission? Had he heard Jesus preach? Seen his miracles? Did he understand who Jesus was? Or was Jesus just a troublemaker to him too? What was he expecting to find in that garden? A trapped criminal fighting for survival like an animal? A terrorist or cult leader on a suicide mission? Or a prophet and a saviour? So they're approaching, and suddenly, here he is, this lone figure, praying, returning to his friends. Malchus, perhaps, watches nervously as the soldiers, not quite knowing what's going to happen, begin to surround Jesus. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, Peter strikes him, cuts off his ear. He's writhing in pain, perhaps going into shock, and then suddenly, as if it never happened, he's whole again, in the blink of an eye, 
restored. Christ undoing the damage that impulsive man does in his own strength. Whatever Malchus expected to find in coming to arrest this weird preacher, he's found healing, wholeness, restoration at the hands of somebody they've come to take to his death. We don't know whether Malchus followed Jesus, whether we'll see him one day in heaven, but we can say for certainty that he couldn't deny what had happened to him that night. So, here's another question. Have we let ourselves come close to Jesus? Or are we keeping a distance because we're not sure what we'll find? We're not sure how it'll go. Perhaps because our impression of the master has been formed by the failure of some of his followers, as as it so often is in today's world. Would we let Christ show us who he really is? In this world, the sword so often seems to triumph, so many under persecution or threat. Should the oppressed retaliate? Should we go to war with whoever America's squaring up to this month? Questions that come with frightening regularity, and I'm not going to try and answer them here. But the victory of the sword is never eternal. And Jesus' sharp rebuke to Peter, no doubt to save him from soldiers who would very quickly dispose of a threat, and partly, no doubt, as well, to try and show him a better way, even now at this 11th hour, is a lesson for us too. And so, at the end of all this then, the disciples have gone, fled, just as predicted. Jesus stands alone. He's a prisoner. He could have got out of this at any moment, but he's won the battle with his own fear. And he's seeing it through while those he's poured his life into for three years, those who he must, when all this is over, seek out, restore, trust with the building of his church, run and hide. Would we have been any braver? Let's humbly and joyfully thank God, shall we, for the lesson and the achievement of Gethsemane, that as Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who identified with us in all of our weakness, yet without sin, and who, having overcome all, has sat down at the right hand of the Father to reign, to intercede for us, to bear us up in our weakness, to restore us when we fall. And that through that, as Paul tells us, we can do all through Christ who strengthens us. But back in this garden, as Jesus is bound and led away, the great triumph of the resurrection may be less than a week into the future, but first the cross remains to be endured. And so the great drama of the trial and crucifixion begins.